We are beginning today a new series of messages in anticipation of Christmas, obviously. And in, in order to help us see the overarching theme of this series over the next few weeks, I'd like to read for us very quickly from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. This is uh, hopefully familiar to many of you, uh, but if not, that's okay. It'll, it'll hopefully be helpful to you to, to get a, a sense of where we'll be heading over the next few weeks. In, in Isaiah 9, verse 2, the prophet Isaiah says, and, he, and, he's, and he's speaking ahead of time about the arrival of the Messiah. And he says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has dawned. And he'll go on. I, I know this isn't printed for you on the screen, but he'll go on just a, a few short verses later to, to speak of this Messiah. And he'll say, For to us, us who are walking in darkness, a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name, and he goes on to say, His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting, you know, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so in, in that passage, Isaiah is speaking hundreds of years before the first Christmas about the arrival of the Messiah. And he doesn't describe the context for the arrival of the Messiah as something um, with, a, with a great deal of celebration or even hopefulness. It's really, he describes it the opposite. It's, it's darkness. The Messiah will come into darkness. I think this is consistent with the circumstances of Christ's, of Christ's birth. If you think about the, the context of his birth. He was born not with fanfare. I mean, you may say, well, how, how, how do you say that this wasn't with fanfare? I mean, you had the angels and you had the shepherds and all those kinds of things. Well, that's true. But think about this. There were only two or three people on the face of the earth that even knew about this. The overwhelming majority of the people who were alive on the earth at the, at the time of Jesus' birth had no idea what was going on. So it was very obscure, actually. And that's why I say there wasn't much fanfare. There wasn't much promotion. There wasn't awareness or celebration. He was born into a struggle. He was born to a young Jewish couple whose people were displaced by the Roman occupation of their country. At the end of an exhausting journey, much of which Mary, his, his mother, was riding on the back of a donkey. Not really any lodging to speak of in the middle of the night. And here's what's so amazing about the birth of Christ. His arrival is completely consistent with his mission. He did not come into the world as a conquering king, although one day he will. But the first Christmas he didn't. He came into the world... A broken world, a world that's broken by sin and death and suffering. And he entered into that brokenness and suffering even to the point of his own death. This is really what, what Christmas is about. It's, it's that God has seen our struggle. He has heard our calls for help. And his response is that he himself has come into the world to be with us. That's what the word Emmanuel means, God with us. And so he has come to us in his son, and he hasn't stood off at a distance. Think about this. 
Any of you who have, who have gone into the inner city to do mission work, you know, to do ministry, what, what do we typically do? And, I, and this isn't criticism, but it's just an observation. We typically, we go into the inner city, we, we get in the midst of the people who are really needy and really, you know, broken in that sense, and we go in for a few hours, right? Or maybe a couple of days. And then it either starts to get dark or the weekend comes to an end, and where, where do we go from there? We go back outside the city to the Marriott, or to home, where it's safe. See, that's what we do. We, we, we go in and then we get out. God didn't do that. He didn't just come in for a couple of hours. He entered our world, and he lived in our world. He had no place to lay his head for over three decades. And so he came to bring us life. And so that's, that's why we're calling this series of messages, God Made Low. Because God has made himself low to come into our world to be our Savior. And so each week over the next month or so, we'll be looking at some aspect of our darkness. The darkness into which Christ has entered And then we'll look also at how Christ leads us out of that darkness. So today, we'll be looking at the darkness of our hearts. And to do that, I'd like to to read another passage of Scripture for us from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 24. Um, The the Isaiah passage really was just to give us a sense of where we're going with the series as a whole, but but now I want to actually preach and teach from, from Ephesians chapter 4. Verses 17 to 24, and this is what God says through the Apostle Paul. He says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart, to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness." What, what Paul is teaching us here in this passage is very important for our understanding and for living the Christian life, I believe. He's not saying, <clears throat> he, what he's saying is that the Christian life is an exchanged life. He's not saying that Jesus is, is one thing that you merely add to the rest of your life to say, oh, I added Jesus. It kind of rounds everything out. That's not what the Christian life is. It's not adding Jesus to make you complete. It's a bringing in of something new, and then there's a putting off of something old. And so something new comes in, but it has to be swapped out for that which is old. And that's why Paul very often will will use this, this language of putting on and putting off. bringing in, sending out, those, those kinds of ideas. And so it appears that in many ways Paul is describing 
something that for his original readers was something that was already happening in their lives. Think about this. The vast majority of the Christians in Ephesus were Gentiles, meaning they weren't Jewish. They, they, they didn't come from a Jewish background. They were, they had a Gentile background. And so what he says to them is, is, is probably pretty attention grabbing to them because he says, don't live any longer like the Gentiles do. To which they're probably thinking, well, wait a minute, we're, we are Gentiles. But, but he's drawing a contrast between the way that they used to live versus what, what, what is more and more characterizing their lives now as followers of Christ. And so he's describing something that, that in many ways is already happening in their lives. And, and I think this just reminds me, and perhaps you, you've seen this in your own life, that sometimes, you know, God is working, but we don't always see how God is working. Sometimes we, we look at our own life and we think, I don't even, I don't even feel like God is working. But the reality is, God is working. And sometimes it takes a while to get to a place of maturity, and then you look back. You kind of get the, 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 the perspective of hindsight, and you begin to realize, ah, God really has been working. I really do realize now that I'm not the same person I was two years ago, or even two months ago, because God is at work. And so he is telling them, God's working in you. And he and begins to describe to them and, and to us what God has been doing. And so first, he describes the old self. He says, this is what the old self is like, and this is, this is where, where I say we're looking at the darkness of our hearts. And then he's going to, to give a description of, of, our, of our new heart, our, our new self as well. But let's, let's start, obviously, with, with the old self. And he describes our old self in, in two categories, two, two big ideas. One, he talks about the old self in terms of the futility of our minds. And then the other aspect of our old self that he talks about is this idea that we are given over to sensuality. The futility of our minds, and we are given over to sensuality. And so let's, let's start with the futility of our minds. And there are three Three aspects, at least, that I see in, in what Paul is saying that can help us understand what Paul is meaning by the futility of our minds. The first aspect that he refers to is, he says that we are darkened in our understanding. The first aspect of the futility of our mind is that we're darkened in our understanding. He seems to be saying that our ability to perceive reality is tainted. He's not saying that we can't see anything. He's not saying that we can't ever understand what is right or what is true, or we can't see anything about our lives that's, that's accurate. But he's saying that, that our vision tends to be like we're kind of in the dark. Some of you felt that way when you came into the sanctuary today. But you know, it's, it's, the idea is that we're, we're walking around in dim light. And because we're seeing in dim light, we can't, there, Paul says there are things about this life that we're not seeing accurately. We're not understanding fully. The, the, the image in my mind that, that I think of, and I've only heard about this, I've never experienced this, this firsthand, but, but it's cataracts. Some of you know someone, or perhaps some of you have even, even had cataracts. Cataracts are, are a very interesting phenomenon that, that goes on with, with our eyesight. 
cataracts, to have a cataract is, is kind of like having uh, a foggy lens on your eye. It's kind of, it's kind of cloudy. And as a result of the cloudiness, you don't, you don't see clearly, or, or perhaps it takes colors and it begins to, it begins to shade them in a particular direction so that you don't see colors in a vivid way, in an accurate way. What, what's really kind of shocking or striking to me is I've, I've talked to now, um, multiple people who have had surgery to correct cataracts. And, and in every single case of the people that I've talked to that have had the surgery to, to get a new lens put in their eyes so that they can see more clearly is they are astonished at the color white. They say, I haven't seen the color white in years. Now, they didn't know that they hadn't seen the color white in years because when they had the cataracts, they would look at something and they would say, oh yeah, that's white. But because the change happened so gradually over a period of time, they were unaware of it. You know, their vision today isn't any different than the vision was yesterday, and the vision yesterday wasn't any different really than the day before. It's like that frog in the kettle idea that when it's changing so gradually, you don't even notice that it's happening. But then you get this correction, and all of a sudden they realize that, you know, that color white, I've been seeing it, but it looked yellow now. I, mean, I realize now it looked yellow. It wasn't white. I haven't seen white in, in longer than I can remember. Paul is saying that, that there are things that we think we understand in this life because that's how we see it. But we're not seeing true colors. We're not seeing true meaning. We're not getting the true perspective because we're darkened in our understanding. The second aspect of, of our futility and uh, the futility of our minds is is what, what Paul refers to as being alienated from God or alienated from the life of God. We're far from God in our natural condition, in our sinfulness, in our brokenness. We're far from God. And because we're far from God, we aren't experiencing the life that God made us to live. God made us to live life with him, to be close to him. Like God is the operating system of our life. But when you get out of touch with the operating system of your life, well, then the platform of your life becomes unstable. And then the programs of your life or the apps of your life don't run properly. And so our lives don't go very often the way that they're supposed to. Sometimes they do. Sometimes we think, oh, I'm fine. It's working fine. But very often, because we're distant from the God who made us, and because we're made to be in a relationship with Him, then we're, our lives are, are, are not, we're not living the life that we're, that we're called to live, that we were made to live. It's like a fish laying out on the carpet. Oh, I'm fine. I got it. Well, no, you're not, because you were made to live in water. You're made with fins and gills. You were made for a particular condition to thrive. We're made for a particular condition. We're made to live in relationship with God. But Paul is saying in many ways, we're like fish out on the rug. Oh, we're fine. He's saying, no, you're not. You're alienated from the life that God made you for. 
So we're darkened in our understanding. We're alienated from the life of God. And then the third aspect here of our of, of the futility, futility of our minds is Paul says that, that our hearts are hard. There's a hardness to our hearts. This is a reference on one hand to our, our unresponsiveness to God. <clears throat> I think it's the ultimate cause of our alienation from the life of God and and from the darkness of our understanding. All those, th- those two things exist because of the hardness of our hearts. But I think he's also saying that in our, in our fallen state, in our natural state, we're not alive to God. In other words, we have hearts of stone toward God. Now think about what, what this means, because I think this really is the foundation for, for the next thing that Paul is going to say about us. Because, because if our hearts are hard, we're made of stone, isn't that really just another way of saying that our hearts are not responsive? Saying that our hearts don't feel. You know, if, if, if you're pursuing a relationship with somebody and they just seem unresponsive, what, what do you, what do you say? You say, well, they're kind of hard-hearted toward me. They're not really, you know, they're not, they're not responsive. It's like they don't feel anything for me. And I think that's what Paul is saying. And it's interesting then that having said that, having referred to the hardness of our hearts, he then turns and says that we are given to sensuality. What does that mean? I'll tell you what it means. If your heart is hard, then your heart is numb. That's another way of saying the same thing. You're not feeling. You don't feel anything. You're numb. What do you do if you're numb? I mean, mo- most people, you know, maybe you've, you've woken up in the middle of the night and, and, you know, one of your arms is just numb because of the way you're sleeping. Or, or some people, you know, they start to get numbness in, in parts of their, their bodies. You know, you get numbness in your feet, some, you know, some type of neuropathy or something like that. No one who is numb says, I love this. This is the best thing I've ever felt. No. You say, come on, start working. Because when you're numb, you want to feel. That's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying in our natural, sinful condition, there is a numbness about us. And guess what the numbness about you wants to do? It wants to feel. That's what sensuality is. What's the root word of sensuality? Sense. You want to sense, you want to feel, because you can't. And so he says, we have given ourselves over to the pursuit of feeling. We want to feel good. We want to feel happy. We want to feel validated. And so we pursue feeling. Isn't that, isn't that an amazing description of our world? That we are are just a horde of people who have devoted ourselves to feeling better, feeling more. And sometimes, and, and I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but you turn that on its head, sometimes when you're when you're numb long enough, sometimes feeling anything is better than feeling nothing. Even pain. 
There are people, you and I probably know them, that would rather feel pain than feel nothing. And that's why many people are pursuing things that are ultimately detrimental, but, it, it, but they still do it because they'd rather feel pain than feel nothing at all. The solution is not to feel more. The solution is that we need God to do surgery on our hearts. Paul says we need to put off the old life and put on the new. Put off the hard heart. Put off the alienation from God. Put off the darkened understanding and put on a new life in Christ because it's what we're made for. You see, you see how this, this fits into what he's saying here? He's saying, look, I'm describing the old, the old self. The, 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 the aspect of, of being futile in your minds and given over to sensuality. That's the part that you need to put off, but then there's a new self that you need to put on. And before I, I, I lay out for you how it is that we go about putting on that new self, I want to I want to kind of give you an illustration, and to do that, I want to ask Rob Gicking to come up and help me do this. Um, <clears throat> Rob is, I just want to say, Rob is a professional. <clears throat> what we're about to do up here, I don't want you to try at home. Actually, that's really not true. I, I would encourage you to try it at home. It might be fun. <laughs> you can, might do it as a relay race in your family or something like that. But see, I've given Rob, I'd love to be able to say I gave Rob this new new jacket, this new sweatshirt, but it's his. We, we wanted to make sure it would fit him, and so it fits him. So he's putting this on because I have given him new clothing that I want him to wear for you up here. And so um, looks pretty good, doesn't it? Thank you. Yeah. So, so Rob has this new clothing that he's just put on, um, but... What we're illustrating here is not just putting on something new, because at the beginning of the message I said, Jesus isn't just something that you add, you know, like, hey, I just needed an extra layer. It's Jesus is something that you put on, but when you put Jesus on, you put this new self on, then you put an old self off. And so, Rob, now that you have your new jacket on, I would like you to take your old shirt off. Rob's been practicing for this. <laughs> he texted me yesterday and he said, I think I can do it in 23 seconds. <laughs> so he's doing good. See why this could be fun to do at home? Some of you are looking, I'm just looking at your faces and some of you are laughing. But there you go. <clears throat> Thank you. Appreciate that. Take your old shirt back with you if you don't mind. <laughs> Some of you were like looking at him going. <clears throat> it was intense. All right. So how many of you found yourself thinking that was stupid? Why didn't he take why didn't he take the old shirt off first and then put the new thing on? Right. Because isn't raise your hand if that's how you get dressed. Right. Most of us take the old outfit off. And then we put the new thing on. But there's, there's two problems with that. One is a very human problem. The other one is a very spiritual problem. 
The human problem is, if I had asked Rob to do that, he would have been up here without a shirt on. And he didn't want to do that. You didn't want him to do that either. <laughs> but the real problem with, with doing it that way is that we're just talking about clothing. And that's fine because it's an illustration. It's an analogy. But Paul isn't saying change your clothes. Paul is saying put off your old self and put on a new self. Well, here's the problem. If you put off your old self the way that you put off your old shirt, before you put on a new self, when you take that old self, what don't you have anymore? A self. Which is really hard to do. You can't. So here's what's amazing. God comes in Christ and says, I've come to give you new life. But I can't, I can't get rid of your old life without first giving you a new life. And so he gives us a new life. He says, here's my son. He's lived in your place. He's fulfilled the requirements of God's law for you. He's died on the cross for you. He's atoned for your sins so that your sins are forgiven. And he's been raised from the dead to new life. And he's, and, and, and to you who put your faith in Christ, he is giving you new life as well. But he says, the first thing I need you to do is put on the new self. And so he puts it on us. We put it on by faith. And you know what the rest of this life is? It's God saying, now, we're going to be taken off the old self. But we're, we're, we're taking it off while the new life is already on. So how do we do that? What does it look like? Well, Paul, Paul gives us, there are four things here that I want to draw to your attention. They'll, they'll, they'll move pretty quickly. But the first is it requires a decision. It requires that we make a decision. The fact that Paul continues to repeat this refrain about putting off and putting on, out with the old, in with the new, it indicates that we are called to respond to these truths about the old life and the new life. Now listen, I understand many of us are Presbyterians. And, and because we're Presbyterians, we, we tend to put a lot of emphasis on things that God does and things that we do. And we have a tendency to, to, to load a lot more in God's bucket of things that He does and very few things in our bucket. You know, God's the one who, who starts this thing. God's the one who works in our hearts and God's the one who, who brings us to Himself. And, and I, and I believe that. I don't believe that any of us can rescue or save ourselves. God must work. And that's why even, even coming to Him is a gracious thing from Him. But here's what I want to say to you, especially if you, you tend to be like that, that kind of Presbyterian. Don't overthink this. We have some responsibility here. And the responsibility simply is, as Paul says, Put, put this on and put this off. There is something here for us to pursue. So pursue it. 
It's not wrong. It's not heresy for, for us to say, you know what? He's calling me to put off. He's calling me to put on. So I'm going to put off and I'm going to put on. At least I'm going to seek to. That's what we're called to. So there is a decision. Second point that I want to bring out for us here today, and it it's that the, the putting off of the old self and the putting on of the new self requires inside change. It requires a heart change. In other words, the new life is not just behavior. It's not. I want you to notice, I know we didn't read this, but if you were to look at Ephesians 4 and and look at verse 25 and, and start to read after that, there's a lot of behavior that Paul talks about there. He talks about um, speaking the truth with with each other. He talks about not being angry or in your anger do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. So he, he starts talking about behaviors. And he's saying, stop doing this. Start doing this. There are behaviors that he talks about. But notice that the behaviors don't come first. The behaviors come after this whole discourse about putting off the old, putting on the new. The change has to start on the inside. It has to start with the heart. You know, very often we'll, we'll hear people, when, when they start to consider Christianity and what it means to put their faith in Christ, and you hear people say, well, wait a minute, let me, let, me, let me figure this out here. If I become a Christian, does that mean that I have to stop sleeping with my girlfriend? Or if I become a Christian, does that mean that I have to stop getting drunk? If I become a Christian, does that mean I have to stop cheating on my taxes? Well, yeah. It does. But that's not where it starts. We don't, we don't say, I want everybody outside the door, and until you get your act together and you get all these things in order, you can't come in. That's not the way it works. Jesus says, come to me. Understand who I am. Understand that I've come and I've entered into your, your darkness. You were far away from God. You had a hard heart. Come to me. Put your trust in me. I've, I've come to live for you. I've come to die for you. I've come to give you life. I've come to forgive your sins. I've come to give you newness of life. Come and, and follow me. Come and trust me. Come and understand that I love you. That's where it starts. Now, now, will eventually will will changes start to happen in my behavior? Yeah, I hope so. But that's not the essence of the Christian faith, and that's certainly not where it starts. What we really need is for God to do surgery on our hearts. Here's here's the application point, at least an application. What would happen, do you think, if you and I? Prayed For some of us, it might mean to start praying. And for others of us, it just means continue praying. But what do you expect would happen if we pray and ask God to change our hearts? What would happen if for, for me if I get in the quietness of my own heart with God on a regular basis to say, God, I recognize my heart needs to change? Part of this whole putting off the old, putting on the new, means that that I've got to be changed on the inside first. Would you please change my heart? 
I believe that if, that if you and I would pray that genuinely, God will absolutely answer that prayer. Will he do it instantaneously? Probably not. It's going to look a little bit more like Rob wrestling with that sweatshirt. But he'll do it. It requires an inside change. So it requires a decision. It requires an inside change. The third, third idea here that I want to challenge you with is it leads to a new way of thinking. Look at, at verse 23 where Paul talks about this new life involving being renewed in the spirit of our minds. As God renews our heart so that our hearts are, are no longer hard or at least less hard over time, that we're no longer darkened in our understanding, we begin to see more clearly. That's the natural thing to expect to see happen. And a huge part of this is what, what I would suggest we could call our personal epistemology. Okay, you don't have to remember that. Don't worry about it. I mean, you can, if you want to impress your friends, maybe you can. But here, here's, here's the real point I'm trying to make. Epistemology is simply, how do you know what you know? How do you know what is true? How do you know what's right? That's what epistemology is. And a large part of this renewed mind is connected with allowing God's word to have an increasing, to be an increasing source of weight and authority and truth in our lives. The question I'm really, really wrestling with here, and I'm asking you to wrestle with me as well, is when it comes to knowing what is right and what is true, where do you go? What gets the most weight in your life for trying to figure out what's right and what's true? Is it the internet? Is it your friends? Is it your teachers? Is it the newspaper? Is it Fox News? Stepped on your toes, didn't I? It needs to be the Word of God. I think, I think having, having this, this new life and this renewed spirit of our minds, renewed in the spirit of our minds, means that there needs to be a correlation between our familiarity with God's word and what we believe is right and what is true. That's why reading the scriptures is so vital for living the Christian life. It's very, very hard. It's very, very hard to grow in the renewing of your mind to to have a, a, a more clear understanding and perspective on this life and on this world without having the Word of God more and more get into us. So we've got a decision, we've got inside change in our heart, and we've got a new way of thinking in the re- renewing of the spirit of our mind as God's word comes in and begins to, to carry the most weight in the way that we know and the way that we, that we think. And then the last point is that this new life requires an all-out new pursuit. An all-out new pursuit. Look at verse 20. Paul says something that's, that's a little peculiar. He's, he's talking about what it, what it means to, to put off the old and put on the new and, and, and no longer be calloused 
and numb and hard in our hearts. And in verse 20 he says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. This is a very unnatural way for Paul to construct this sentence. It's, it's, it's not natural to talk about learning a person. If you talk about learning something, you say, well, I'm learning a subject, right? I'm, I'm learning algebra. Or maybe, maybe you don't like algebra, but, you know, you, you learn a subject or you learn a game. I'm learning this game. I'm learning how to play. I'm, I'm learning information or I'm learning a skill. But when was the last time you said, I'm learning a person, right? I mean, we had Rob come up here a couple minutes ago. You, you know, if, you're, if, you're, if you meet Rob and you're getting to know him, you, you don't say, hey, I'm learning Rob. That's just not the way we'd say it. But Paul takes that peculiar way of talking about learning and he attaches it to Jesus. Saying, we need to be learning Jesus. Jesus is not just something, somebody that we learn from. He's not just a teacher. He's not just something, someone that we learn about. He's not, he's not a thing. He's not just a person even. He's the Lord of life. And because he's the Lord, Lord of life, we don't just need to learn from him or learn about him. We need to study him. We need to learn him. That he took our sin. That he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. That he's come into this world to be with us in our brokenness. He willingly went to the cross to atone for our sins. To remove the distance between us and God. Caused by the hardness of our hearts. That's what's true about him. But the question is how do you respond to that? What do we do with that? Do we say oh that's information. That's interesting information about Jesus. No. He says, now come know me. Come into a relationship with me. And so he's the Lord of all of life. He doesn't just come into our lives as one interest among many. We don't just add him to the list of things that that we are interested in and we want to learn more about. If he comes into our life, then he needs to come in and be supreme. He needs to sit on the throne of our life, if you will. Now, you may say, oh, I don't think I have a throne of my life. Okay, well, maybe, yeah, you don't have a throne of your life. But here's what you do have. You do have a center of your life. You do have, you do have a, a way of prioritizing your life. And there are certain things that you place, certain people, certain interests that you put at the top. And what I'm saying to you, and I think what Paul is saying to us, is that Jesus if we understand really who he is and we really want to have a right relationship with him, then the proper place for him to be is at that highest place so that everything else in our life comes under him, finds its rightful place in relationship to being under his lordship, under his kingship. It's putting him at the center and that brings new life more and more to bear in us. It puts, it puts our life in perspective. And so we have this challenge. Let us put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And let us put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and true holiness. Let me pray for us as we close our service.
Lord, we thank you that you have seen our darkness. You've seen the darkness of this world, and and particularly you've seen the darkness of our hearts. And you've heard our calls for help, and you've come to be with us. You haven't stood off at at a distance, but you've entered into our world, and you've entered into our lives, and you've given us a new self. You loved us so much that you you lived a perfect life, fulfilling the requirements of righteousness for us. Then you, who knew no sin, went to the cross to atone for our sins, so that through faith in you, our sins might be forgiven and canceled, and you've purchased for us new life. And you've put that new life on us for those of us who are who are in Christ, who have faith in Christ. You've you've clothed us in it. You've put it on. And now you call us more and more to put off the old self. And Lord, we ask for your help to do that. We pray that you would would be working in us to do that. That you would help us to make the choices and decisions that we need to make in order to pursue this putting on and putting off. That you would help us to, that you would accomplish this inside change in our hearts. That you would do surgery on our hearts and change us from the inside out that you would renew our thinking, that more and more what you say in your word would become the center of gravity for the way we know what is true and what is right. And Lord, that, that you would lead us ultimately to a new love, a new devotion, a new pursuit of you, putting you at the center of all things so that every other area of our life would find its rightful place surrendered to you so that you'd be at the center of our lives and that our lives more and more would glorify you. Make us new. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.